0: The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, November 13th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Webster's Dictionary defines the word ethos as the distinguishing character, the distinguishing sentiment, the moral nature or guiding beliefs of a person, group, or institution. Oxford Dictionary, if you're Oxford folk, it's not much different. Oxford defines it similar manner as the characteristic spirit of a culture, the characteristic spirit of an era or a community as manifested in its beliefs and aspirations. See, every, every group of people, every organization, every institution, every family has an ethos. Whether directly cultivated or indirectly lived, the attitudes, the characteristic spirit is lived out in the decisions and the actions of that organization and of that family, whether directly or implicitly. Every organization, every family, it has an ethos. And that includes the church. And so this morning, as we return to Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica, and we we get ready to wrap that letter up, what we're going to find in these concluding verses, or at least this closing section, what we'll see in many ways is Paul giving the church a reminder of the ethos of God's family. What's the ethos, the, the characteristic spirit or attitude that's expressed through actions, that indicates the ethos of the people. You see, whether it's in Japan, whether it's in Central Asia, or, or whether it's in Central Virginia, with, with all the, the cultural dissimilarities that exist between us, there is to be an ethos amongst God's people that translates cross-culturally. There's an ethos amongst the family of God that Defies cultural boundaries because the gospel that creates the church is the same gospel that shapes the life of the church. And so, if you've got your Bibles, I want you to, to find First Thessalonians, and we're going to be in chapter five this morning. I'll give you a heads up. In a couple of weeks, I think it's the twenty seventh. Uh, in two weeks, we will begin uh, the Advent season of the church, and so we're going to wrap this book up next week. And then starting the 27th, we're going to cover or at least walk through those traditional Advent themes of of love and peace and hope and joy as we lead towards Christmas Day together. I don't know if you've looked at your calendars, but Christmas is on Sunday this year. So we will gather together on Christmas morning to to celebrate together, and we'll be leading up to that for the Advent season. But this week and next week, we're gonna finish these last little bits of this letter that Paul has written to the church in Thessalonica. And so as we get to chapter 5, in particular, as we, as we look at verse 12, verses 12 through 22, as we read them, and we read them a couple of weeks ago together, it, there are 19, I think it's 19, instructions it seems like that Paul is giving to the church. And at first, it just seems like he's thinking about all the things left that he wants to say because maybe he's run short of papyrus and he just needs to get them all in there real quick. And it just seems like this shotgun list of things that he's giving the church. But as we slow down and begin to read and begin to consider what he's actually saying and how he's actually saying it, we begin to see that he's laying out for the church a reminder of the ethos that's meant to, to be experienced and distinguishable amongst God's people. And so in verses 12 through 13, we, we looked at those a couple of weeks ago, Paul reminds the church that we are to appreciate and not to take for granted the gift of pastors in the family of God, right? Appreciation and affection is meant to be expressed for those who labor amongst you because of their work, And so that appreciation, that affection is expressed in a myriad of ways, but it is to express the prevailing attitude and characteristic in light of those that that work and labor amongst the church, appreciation and affection for them. It's part of the ethos that's meant to be distinguishable amongst the family of God. And then, in the remaining verses, verses 14 through 15 and then 16 through 22, he's going to hit two more larger categories of attitudes and actions that are meant to mark and cultivate this ethos amongst God's family. In the next section, verses 14 and 15, Paul is reminding the church that together we own the responsibility for the spiritual maturation of the church family. That we, as members of the family of God, have a responsibility to own one another's spiritual maturation and spiritual well-being. Let's let's listen to him here in these couple of verses first and and hear what he has to say. Paul says, we urge you, brothers. So again, just right here, he's talking to the whole church, the the whole congregation, the whole family, right? Right? What he's about to say are, are, are all hands-on-deck instructions, right? Indifference for those who are part of the family of God, who, who, who are here by God's grace. Brothers and sisters now, bonded together by the grace of Jesus and the, and the blood of Christ, there's to be no space for indifference towards one another's well-being and spiritual maturation. This is what Paul is reminding them, right? We urge you, brothers, admonish the idol encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone, right? So there's this picture that Paul has been painting throughout this letter through his language some 13 times he, he's referred to the church as his brother, as his sister, reminding them of this bond that we have together. He even spoke of his ministry amongst them like a nursing mother in his care for them, uh, like a father who, who longs to give instruction and guidance to his children, how he's felt with, about them since he's been taken away from them, how he's been torn apart from them like a child taken from his parents. There's this intense bond of familial love that exists amongst God's people because of the gospel. And so one thing that Paul has shown us throughout the letter is that as family, whenever we see the evidence of God's continued grace in one another's lives, we are to see it, acknowledge it, and express it to one another as a means of encouragement, right? If you've been here with us, we've seen it a hundred times, But now he's moving on to some other things that are to mark this this characteristic culture amongst God's people. And the second one is this. When we see a family member acting out of line, when we see that some aspect of their life is out of bounds, when we recognize that they are living out of step with a life pleasing to God, you and I out of love, for our brother or sister in Christ, for their joy and their well-being, you and I are to step in. When we recognize someone's life being out of step with the gospel, out of step with pleasing God, you and I have the responsibility to step in. Step in with a warning. This is what Paul is saying when he's reminding the church that we are to admonish the idol, and I'll tell you, it's not because of any particular level of, of, of study or, or, or smarts I have about this, but I, I've read enough of people who are actually much smarter than me who have studied this letter for decades, and I would agree with them that, that idol is probably not the best translation of what Paul's saying right here. This word is almost always used in the language of its day, in the Bible and in outside literature, to describe a situation where a person or a group of people is out of step with the prevailing order. So think about a soldier who is marching in formation with his regiment or his battalion and he's simply out of step with everybody else. Like, it causes chaos amongst the entire group when he's out of step. It's disorderly. And the way this word is most often used it is unruly, disorderly, out of step. And Paul isn't specific with us in, in what he's saying here as to exactly in the church in Thessalonica who is out of step in what particular ways apart from the things he's already talked about. And so we wish he would be more specific with exactly what he's talking about, but it's easy to think, even in now, in thinking about our life as a family, the family of God in this local church, that. When a brother or sister is living in a way that is out of step with the gospel, out of step with a life that's pleasing to God, it's it's fairly easy to see these kinds of things. These are the kind of things that make themselves a little more obvious. And when someone that we're talking with, a brother or sister, is continuously in conversation with whoever they're talking to, spilling out bitterness Envy or, or gossip about someone else. It's like, uh, it's not very hidden, it's pretty clear. When someone is just overflowing in, in anger and violence of anger towards friends or spouses or children, it's, it's pretty obvious, it's clear, it's not hidden. When a brother or sister is in some way, shape, form, or fashion, Living in a manner that is out of step with the gospel. Familial love in the family of God requires us to step in. Love doesn't allow someone to live out of step with the gospel and verge on the edge of stepping off a cliff. We don't simply let one another live this way. Paul says, In love, you and I are to admonish. Same word he used, we talked about last couple weeks ago, when we talked about the leaders in the church. It's the same word, it means to warn. We are to speak directly and clearly to them from God's word about their misstep to help them see clearly from God's word how they are out of step with a life pleasing to God and to help them see from God's word clearly the Lord of grace and truth who calls them to himself that we might win them in repentance. That through helping them clearly see their misstep and, and God's graciousness, their heart would be softened and they might confess and turn and by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit get back in step with God's will for their joy and for his glory. See, admonishment, and be very careful, and we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, admonishment is, is never about taking an opportunity to beat up on somebody, right? It's always an expression of love that is willing to risk the discomfort that comes with having very difficult and hard conversations, oftentimes very awkward conversations, but it's a love a love we have for one another as family that's willing to risk that discomfort in order to help a brother or sister see that they are out of step with what God has set forward for their joy and his glory. It's never about beating up on them. It's never about making yourself appear to be more self-righteous in their eyes. It's never about what you do well and they do poorly. No, it's, it's love. Wanting them to live in the joy that God has for them, the life he's set out that's pleasing to him. Admonish those who are out of step with the gospel. But that's not it. When we see a brother or sister who's disheartened, who's discouraged, who is feeling constantly and consistently like a failure, maybe easily overwhelmed, Paul says we are to encourage them. Right, encourage the faint-hearted. Notice he didn't say admonish the faint-hearted. Right? Sometimes, and I'll just sometimes it, it's easy for us. And some of you are wired by nature to be very comfortable with discomfort and hard conversations. Some of you are wired to see things that are out of step in life and want to bring them in step and in line with things. Right? So you see brothers or sisters and you love them and you want to help them see the error of their life in light of God's word and bring them in step and you're willing to just get in there and do it, right? But it's easy for a hammer to see everything like a nail. And you see a brother or sister struggling in faint-heartedness, discouragement, discouragement always seeming to be forgetful of God's grace towards them and feeling like they want to give up and they're a failure and to come at them with admonishment. Paul says, no, 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 no. With the faint-hearted, we're to come alongside and deposit courage into their heart and soul. One writer said it, he said, the faint-hearted are prone to fears, discouragement, anxiety, They get disheartened at their own shortcomings. And by the hardships of life, they're easily overwhelmed. They feel like failures and they're prone to give up. And so to them, we bring the true hope of God and his grace, that God is true to his promises. And we communicate that and we we encourage them in that, not just by what we say, but by how we say it by how we come alongside them, by how we encourage them. And So while some of you are probably predisposed to be really good at admonishment and really comfortable helping one another to see where we're out of step and to bring them back in line with the gospel, some of you are also, by nature and wiring, really comfortable and really good encouragers, really good comforters. Right? This makes complete sense to you. But in the same way, you've got to be careful because you're also pretty prone to comfort everyone right off a cliff without helping those who need to see their their missteps, to see how they're out of step with the gospel, and and to warn them, to bring them back in line. You just kind of pillow their fall off the cliff, right? And so Paul's helping us to see the vast, kind of the, the variety, of experience and life and love that's necessary in the family of God. That's not all he's saying, right? Thirdly, he says we are to help the weak. Now, again, we wish Paul was more specific here in, in regards to exactly what he's talking about when he's speaking about the weak. It can and it certainly probably does include who, people who struggle with a variety of physical weaknesses, Weaknesses being any kind of diminished capacity or capability, physically or mentally. You know, in Paul's day, and in, uh, sadly, it's not a lot better in our day, but in the Greco-Roman world of Paul's day, it was those who, who struggled physically and mentally and emotionally in this kind of weakness, that was off, they were often the most um, victimized and taken advantage of. And Paul says to, to the weak amongst you, brothers, you need to help them. Hold tight to them. Hold on to them. Help them. Walk them through their day in and day out life in the family of God. But Paul uses this word in a number of ways. It most certainly means those who, who amongst us may have an infirmity or a weakness, but he uses the same word in Romans chapter 8.26 when he says, the Spirit of God helps us in our weakness, And it's important to note that Paul doesn't use the plural term there, weaknesses. It's a fundamental weakness of soul and of heart in a fallen world that you and I have in the face of present evil, present temptation, present sin, and the reality of death that reminds us that we are ultimately and always dependent upon the outside grace of God and work by his spirit in our hearts and in our lives. It's a fundamental weakness that is common amongst all of us, and at times, we may deal with and seasonally go through various weaknesses in this life. We may be prone to or given to a weakness, it's said sometimes in the Scriptures, towards a particular temptation or sin that apart from the outside work and power of God's grace and spirit in us, we in ourselves left prone to that or are absolutely victim to addictions and things like that. But Paul also uses this word in the letter to the church in Rome and to the letter to the church in Corinth and 1 Corinthians to speak of brothers and sisters in the church whose conscience is weaker than other brothers and sisters, and that they just are are not able in their conscience to enjoy a a level of freedom because of the gospel that another brother or sister is able to enjoy. All of these things are using the same word, and Paul uses them throughout multiple letters, so we don't know exactly what he's speaking about here or he's speaking about all of them. But what he says is when we recognize a brother or sister in their weakness, physical, emotional, emotional, spiritual, we're to step in as family steps in and hold on and hold them close and hold them tight and help them forward. But all of these things assume that we are intentionally paying enough attention to each other to notice them, that we're actually looking out for one another and we recognize and sense the vested interest in one another's spiritual maturation, and we sense the familial responsibility that we have for the well-being and the spiritual growth of the entire family, right? It it predisposes that we actually feel that, and we recognize our responsibility, and we're more aware of one another and, and less just prone to be looking at ourselves and focus on ourselves all the time. And I want to be careful as we read through these, because it's very easy to read through these verses and, and listen to Paul's instructions to the church and take what he says here and make them labels that we apply to people. You're unruly and you're faint-hearted, and, oh, you're one of those weak ones." These aren't labels. At best, they're, they're, they're generalities. At best, they're tendencies. That at one time or another, just be honest with yourself, all of us will find ourselves given to in some season or time in life. Some may have the tendency to be more unruly in nature and in spirit than others. But yet, who amongst us hasn't found ourselves out of step with the life of the gospel? Some may have the tendency and be given to more faint-heartedness than others, easily discouraged, prone to giving up, always looking down upon themselves, forgetful of God's grace to them, being reminded of his steadfastness towards them today, getting home in three hours and thinking we're the worst thing ever. But who hasn't felt the discouragement and the sense of feeling like a failure in the eyes of God before All of us at some time or or some season of life will walk through these various things. They're, They're not labels. Though we might have a particular proclivity towards one or the other, that's not what Paul's talking about here. I love how Packer reminds us in his book, Knowing God, that the church is a hospital in which nobody is completely well and anyone can relapse at any time. Which is why... Paul continues to go on and to say that the exercise of all of these instructions, the warning and admonishment, the depositing of courage, the lifting up and the holding on and the helping of the weak, it's it's all to be done patiently. It requires patience. Be patient with them all, Paul said, because Paul knew that relationships amongst family are never easy. Those with a tendency to be unruly always seem to be stepping out of bounds. Someone always seems to be needed to be chased down and turned around. It always seems like at every turn someone is continually tempted to just give up, forgetting how good God is and that God is purposefully in control. The difficulties of life that we're going through are actually going somewhere, right? As one writer said, the faint-hearted amongst us have a tendency to forget that what was so vivid yesterday and grow disheartened in the face of the same pressure today. And yet there's always weakness amongst us, right? And that weakness reminds us that we might be in this with one another in their weakness for the long haul. And it's easy, let's just be honest, for our patience to be tested and to be tried. But the love of a family the family of God, it requires long-suffering. That's actually what the word there means, the patience. It's long-suffering. And this long-suffering is quite literally the opposite of irritability. It's the opposite of being easy to anger. It's the opposite of responding to the need in any sense of retaliation or vindictiveness. That's why Paul said in verse 15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Because sometimes, even when we try in love to help one another, we end up hurting one another. And even in the family, in the relationships that we have together, it's not uncommon for us to hurt one another. And if your heart is anything like mine, more often than I would actually want to admit, my initial response is retaliation that's what I feel. That's how I want to respond. Maybe Paul was was considering Jesus' words that he gave to his followers, and we've got them in Matthew chapter 5 when he said, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends his rain on the just and the unjust, for if you love those who love you, right, if you only... Care about and are willing to warn and admonish those who are out of step who you know are going to easily receive it because they love you. You're only willing to encourage those you know who will readily receive that encouragement from you. You're only really willing to come alongside and hold tight to and hold on to and help in the weakness those you you like and know like you. Well, what reward do you have? Jesus said. Don't even the tax collectors do the same thing? Now, this kind of love, this ethos, this gospel ethos being cultivated amongst God's people, easily distinguishable in the life of God's people, is one that requires long suffering, not retaliation for hurt, but always seeking to do good to one another and to everyone. And so it's not just not retaliating at times, it's actually pursuing the good of those we love. It's utterly countercultural to our sinful hearts. He's talking about a love amongst a family, amongst brothers and sisters that meet one another where they are and are willing to patiently lead one another to where we need to go. See, every time we're willing, by God's grace, to warn a brother or sister, to encourage, to come alongside and help, to patiently be with them where they are to help them towards where God is taking them. We, we are expressing, we are, we are showing a picture, we are giving a glimpse to one another, even our own hearts of, of what God has done for us and continues to do for us in Jesus. Again, I, I love Packer. He said, as you and I appreciate the patience of God, we have to think about how he is born with us and still bears with us. When so much of your life is unworthy of him, and you have so richly deserved his rejection, learning to marvel at his patience and long-suffering with you, and seek his grace to imitate it in your dealings with others, and try not to try his patience together anymore. You see, friends, the difference between what we deserve and what we receive through Jesus to the degree that our heart grasps that, that is the depth and the breadth of the resource that God has given us for living out these instructions to his church, for the cultivation of this ethos amongst his family. These verses, they express a a gospel-born ethos that leaves a church increasingly looking like Jesus and his ministry to us. So let me ask you, does this kind of attentive engagement describe your engagement with your church family? Maybe you're visiting with us from out of town, you've got a local church family somewhere else. This is the same question to you as you consider your local church family? Does this kind of attentive and, and active engagement describe your attentive and active engagement in your church family? I want you to understand, as we covered it a couple of weeks ago, the the pastors and the leaders of the church, the elders, they can't do this alone. They can't do all of this, right? And as you read through this, you recognize that Paul isn't leaving any space for anyone in the family of God to simply consume or be a spectator of the whole process. We carry a responsibility, and we carry the privilege of owning the spiritual maturation and the spiritual well-being of one another. In fact, in so many circumstances and in so many instances, you are much better positioned than your pastors and elders are to offer the needed warning and admonishment, to offer the needed encouragement to one another, to offer the help that's so, that's so needed and necessary. By the time so many of those things come to us, so much time has passed by. But you're right there with one another And these words that Paul is giving to the church, he's giving to everyone. It's an all-hands-on-deck responsibility. So do you sense the responsibility for the spiritual well-being and maturation of your church family? I will tell you this, this ethos, this this gospel-born ethos he's describing here, it will be absent in the life of a local church to the direct degree that the family of that local church view their engagement as spectators or consumers. To the degree that the church family sees themselves as spectators to what God is doing here, that is the direct degree to which this ethos will be missing in the life of a local church because it requires all of us, brothers and sisters, to not just sense but to own with joy this responsibility for one another's spiritual well-being. Right? So those verses remind us of this ethos, this attitude, and the actions born out of it, right? But then in verses 16 through 22, Paul is going to remind us that in this family, in the family of God, we take our time together like this on Sunday morning. We take this time together very seriously. We don't disregard it, right? Now, as you look at these verses, I'll just tell you that verses 16 through 18, they're often read and often taught and often applied as though they are directly giving to the individual follower of Jesus' life. Individual instructions, each one for your life. They can be applied that way. They do offer that kind of spiritual good and spiritual benefit, but that is not the context in which they were given. The context in which they were given is a connection directly with the next four verses through verse 22, which talk about the time that God's people spend together like we're spending here in corporate worship. You see, all the verbs in verses 16 through 22 are all plural. They're all, this is what you do together. They're better translated in Southern, right? I'll read them to you. They make sense to me in Southern. Y'all rejoice always. Y'all pray without ceasing. Y'all give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for y'all. Y'all don't quench the spirit. Y'all don't despise prophecies. But y'all test everything, and y'all hold fast to what is good, and abstain from every form of evil, y'all. Y'all... 20 years in Virginia has almost erased the y'all from my Tennessee language, but I, I, I love it. This is how it reads. Again, in its context, as many of those who have spent their, their lives studying this letter and the two letters that Paul's written to this church, most agree that Paul is referring to what you and I would refer to as time of corporate worship together, our time together like right now. That there there are to be attitudes and actions that flow out of that attitudes that reflect this gospel ethos. When we're together, we are to express joy. Now, he's not talking about experiencing joy. He's talking about the expression of it, as Gordon Fee reminds us. And who else but God's people, when they're together, have as many reasons to rejoice as we do, regardless of what the circumstances around us say? This instruction and this reminder, it has all the weight and all the freight in it of everything that Paul has said already in this letter and all the reasons he's been reminding them of and pointing out to them where the hand of God has continued to be and is still active in and through the lives of his people over and over and over again. Who but the family of God have the reasons to rejoice always like we do as we know and we see God's gracious hand and spirit at work in our lives in all circumstances and things. When we're together, what can we do but rejoice? Because God is always at work. Thomas Watson wrote that our tendency is to pore over our losses rather than ponder all of our mercies. A gracious heart spies out mercy to praise in every condition. Right, Paul is reminding us that part in our time together, there's this expression of joy that is born out of a heart that is always looking for and spying for the mercies of God, mercies that truly aren't deserved but are so freely given that we declare them to one another through our songs and through our prayers, through our words and our encouragement and through our teaching. There is to be an expression of joy, when God's people are together, and also a a reflection of our dependency, a dependency that's expressed when we're all together through prayer. Now, this verse, when you read it in the context of the life of the individual Christian and not the church of God together, it, it can be a discouraging reminder that we don't pray enough. But it's easy to misunderstand what Paul is saying here, right? He's talking about a characterization, In particular, when God's people are together, our time together is to be marked by an expression of our ongoing and deep and abiding dependency upon God for all things, most clearly expressed as we're praying together. We're bringing our needs together before God. We're expressing that dependency together to him. It's characterizing the reminder that now, by the grace of God, or the Spirit of God, alive and at work in our hearts, with you and I being hidden in Jesus, abiding in Him, all of life is lived in communion with God. God doesn't have office hours that we can go to Him with and everything else we're left on our own. No, all of life is free for us to live in communion with God. And that communion and that dependency is expressed when we're together through our prayers as well as an expression of gratitude that's to be a discernible effect of the gospel in our time together, right? Giving thanks in all circumstances. Now, be careful and notice, he's not saying giving thanks for all the circumstances of life in a fallen world. He said we're giving thanks in them because we of all people know that God is at work in them sanctifying and transforming us in them, glorifying himself through us in them. And so what a privilege we have to gather together, to have our hearts week by week recalibrated as we come together and express our joy in God and our dependence upon him and our gratitude for his grace and his steadfast love as we sing as we pray as we speak and as we listen to god's word and his spirit through one another that's what verses 19 through 22 get after y'all don't quench the spirit and don't despise prophecies but test everything and hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil Right Again, those aren't separate instructions or separate commands. Our our verses and our English punctuation get in the way. They are grammatically connected to the verses ahead of them, which is why we understand the context in which they're spoken in. Paul is simply saying that when you and I gather together, when we despise God speaking to one another by his spirit through one another, we're quenching the work of his spirit. They go together. They explain each other. So Paul says, test everything and hold fast to what is good and discard that which is evil. Listen, when we're together like this, God's spirit is working through his word through the foolishness of preaching like mine, right? And you, together, have the responsibility, just like the church in Berea, we learn about in Acts, to make sure that what we're saying and what we're teaching is in step and in order and in accordance with God's word. But more specifically, Paul's talking about something else as well. Since the spirit of God has been poured out on the church and the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead has taken up residence in your heart as a follower of Jesus, it should come as no surprise that that spirit who hovered over the face of nothing and everything that wasn't came into existence and that spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that spirit that empowered him is now alive and at work in you. It shouldn't be a surprise that sometimes that spirit may lead a brother or sister in Christ at a different time and in a different way to speak a particular word of encouragement or warning or help to another brother or sister. Shouldn't be surprised. And you shouldn't disregard it or you shouldn't despise it. Right, some of you may have felt at some point a very clear maybe a very strong compulsion in a time to speak a word of encouragement like this or a word of warning like this, a word of warning that you, you don't understand quite why you're saying it, but once you share that with a brother or sister, God uses it. And all of a sudden, the way in which they may have been out of step with the gospel becomes clear to them and they're brought back in step through repentance because you spoke this word to them. Maybe you've felt that before or maybe someone said something like that to you before. Paul's saying we're, we're not to despise that. I mean, who are we to constrain the spirit of God like that? It, it's not, we're not to despise it or disregard it, but listen, you're to test it. You're to take what's said and measure it. Is it in step and in alignment with God's revealed word? If it is, receive it for the strengthening up of the body, the building up of the body. If it's not, Disregard it. Cast it aside. But don't be surprised by it. And don't despise it. You see, when we gather together, there, there's this balance going on. At least there should be. Between us together wanting and being willing to hear from God through his people. And yet testing everything that we hear. There should not be a fear of God speaking for the building up of his body, of his church family, through his people. There shouldn't be a disregard or a contempt for that. And so I think it it begs a a much longer conversation and it begs the honesty that we've probably got room to grow in that here, right? But you're not to be afraid of it. Paul is very convinced that this is an important part of the Spirit's work within the church. In fact, you can go read 1 Corinthians 12-14, through where Paul gets very specific about this. But God intends by His Spirit, through His people, not just through the, the foolishness of preaching, but through moving one another towards each other in love to strengthen and encourage and comfort the family. So let me ask you this as we get ready to respond. How, how do you approach Sunday morning? Do you you approach it with an eagerness and an expectation to hear from God? A desire to surrender to what his spirit is saying through his people and his word? Or do you come as a spectator? As a consumer? Listen, this ethos that Paul is reminding us of will not be cultivated if we as the family of God who call Redemption Hill home don't eagerly accept our responsibility for each other's well-being for the spiritual maturation of the family. Together we express our joy and bring our prayers and sit under God's word and test it in order to take root in our hearts and lives. Together we have our hearts reoriented and reminded together that our identity is not in who what we do, it's not in where we've come from, it's solely rooted in Jesus and not even our present circumstance. Together, week by week, we, we practice for the day When the entire family of God from around the world and all of time will together before the throne worship our true and living Savior. We are preparing for that day. Do you prioritize this time of preparation? How could you even begin preparing your heart for this time? There's an ethos that's meant to be discernible amongst the family of God. This is what Paul has been reminding the church of. We're to love and affirm those who work amongst us for our joy. We're to love one another by warning and encouraging and helping one another grow up into Jesus. We are to love and express our love for our good and gracious Heavenly Father. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger. The one who does not treat us as our sins deserve, but graciously poured out and executed the punishment we deserve on his innocent son so that by faith, those of us who believe into him now receive from God what we don't deserve. Together, we are to love joyfully, dependently, and gratefully and express it together. For this, Paul said, is the will of God in Christ Jesus for this is his will for his people. It comes from his hand, the one who spared you from his wrath by not sparing his son. It's his will for y'all, for us, for our good and our joy. Redemption Hill, Here, this is my, my prayer and I, I would hope it would be our prayer in the days and weeks and years to come if God gives them to us. May, may history look back on the story of this church and And may this ethos have been increasingly discernible amongst our church family. May this be the the picture and the experience, the discernible effect of the gospel amongst those who call Redemption Hill home. To that end, let me pray for us and and then we'll respond together to God's word. Father, it's so amazing that You care so much for your people, for our joy, for our good, and your glory through us that you you even help us to understand how your grace and the goodness of the gospel shapes our life together. Lord, for this ethos to be cultivated here, to be increasingly present amongst us, it's going to take a continued work and dependence upon your spirit in us to, to bring it about. Lord, help us to to see and to gratefully receive the privilege and the responsibility you've given us as brothers or sisters in your family for one another's maturation and spiritual well-being. Help us as a people to increasingly own the responsibility you've given all of us together for the maturation of this family. Lord, we ask that you would do that very thing in in us and through us for Jesus' fame, for our greater joy. And we ask it in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.